Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Creedal Catholic. I'm really excited to get to what I have in store today. But just real quick, I'd love to hear from you. Reach out, Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. Let me know what you think of these episodes and let me know what you'd like to hear on future episodes. I also want to remind you that we will be doing a book club soon talking about Frank Sheed's Map of Life. Very digestible, easy read, 140 pages or so. You can read it in a couple days. And uh, we'll be talking about that and what it has to teach uh, Catholics and non-Catholics alike. So grab a copy of Map of Life by Frank Sheed. And now on to the show. So in the last episode, we talked all about scripture and ecclesiology. And I think those are indeed two of the three really big things that separate Protestants from Catholics as far as metatheology is concerned. The third one, I think, is soteriology. And when we look at soteriology, or basically the study of how we are saved, what we see on the Protestant side of things is faith alone, right? Sola fide was the second of the two rallying cries of the Protestant Reformation. Sola scriptura was number one, sola fide, or faith alone, was number two. And for many Protestants, the differences between Catholic and Protestant understandings of soteriology are really the crux of the issue between these two camps. John Piper, for example, a Reformed Protestant pastor, has accused the Roman Catholic Church of heresy because of its views on justification. R.C. Sproul, uh, a, a Presbyterian, uh, the late R.C. Sproul, he passed away, I think, last year or the year before, um, uh, added that the Roman Catholic Church has anathematized the gospel. And he accuses the church of suffering from, quote, a theological hemophilia. Hemophilia is the, the, the blood disease that uh, causes you to bleed to death when you get a cut. Uh, a theological hemophilia, he says, that has led her, her to bleed to death. So in the telling of these scholars, R.C. Sproul, John Piper, others like them, justification by faith alone is the essence of the whole gospel. And I have to say, I get it. I get why justification is such a big thing here. Because the gospel is a message from God to humanity about what has gone wrong and how we are saved. And how we are saved is a really, really important issue. But unfortunately, it's disagreements over these that have introduced so many schisms into the global body of confessing Christians. So there is the church, the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, and that is coterminous with the Catholic church. Um, But there still are many Christians uh, outside of the the formal bounds of the Catholic church who nonetheless, by by some mystery, are included in the salvation given to the church. even though due to some misunderstanding uh, or brokenness or conflict, they remain outside the church. So let's talk about this idea of justification by faith alone. I think it's worth pointing out that justification by faith alone, even though it is such a rallying cry of the Reformation, it never appears in Scripture. Now, Luther's German translation of Romans 3.28 reads, Der Mensch gerecht werde ohne des Gesetzes wirke allein durch den Glauben, which basically means or verbatim means, a man is justified without works of the law by faith alone. But here's the interesting thing here about this translation that that Luther had of Romans chapter 3. The Greek from which Luther was translating, from the Greek Septuagint, does not include the word alone. Luther actually added it to his edition. He was playing fast and loose with Scripture. Imagine that. The Sola Scriptura guy was playing fast and loose with Scripture. scripture. Uh, He added it to his edition and later admitted it admitted to doing so, claiming that it was more in line with what, what Pauline theology espoused, and it was no doubt what Paul originally intended. Um, almost all English, English translations since then have corrected Luther's addition, stating simply that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So um, not, uh, not faith alone, but just saying faith apart from the works of the law. This is absolutely consistent with Catholic teaching, 
um, as I hope to adequately demonstrate. Um, and I will say on this point, uh, you know, I refer you to someone like N.T. Wright, uh, who has done a lot of Pauline scholarship, one of the greatest living Pauline scholars. And, um, you know, he points out that when Paul uses language like this about works of the law in the Pauline epistles, most of the time he's talking about ceremonial law. Um, he's, you know, basically you're justified by faith apart from uh, following the circumcision, for example. So this is not about um, practical works and achieving faith by works. This is really about um, whether or not you have to follow the old uh, laws of Jewish um, Jewish ritual, right? So that's the first thing I'll say. Uh, the second thing I think that, you know, on this broader topic of faith alone versus works, faith versus works, I also think it's important to recognize that there is one place in the entire New Testament where the phrase faith alone actually does appear. And I'm not, I'm not including uh, Luther's contrived faith alone in Romans 3. The only place where faith alone actually does appear is in James chapter 2. And that reads, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So this is very interesting. Um, the Bible never says a man is justified by faith alone. And the only time it talks about faith alone is when it says, a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, Luther found this very distasteful. He thought it contradicted Paul's teachings. Um, one reason, uh, this is one reason why he wanted to discard the entire epistle of James, and uh, he called it an epistle of straw. Uh, fortunately for us, the church was wiser than that and decided to keep James, uh, and we, we retain it in our scriptural canon as we have since the 4th century. Okay, now... Um, this is a this is a contradiction, right? I mean, as as Scott Hahn, he's a Catholic scholar, uh, runs the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology in Ohio, uh, and he is a convert from Presbyterianism. He was a Presbyterian pastor, but he's pointed out that now we are at this point where Protestant teaching uh, cogently claims what Paul never said and forcefully repudiates what James specifically said. So this is obviously a problem, right? <clears throat> now, a couple things here. This is not to say that Paul is not pointing out the importance of faith. In justification, we are justified apart from the works of the law, as Paul writes in Romans three. So, what are we what are we to make of this and similar passages in Paul's writing? Well, we were not surprised um, when we were doing our homework, my wife and I, on on becoming Catholic. We were not surprised to find that the early church fathers also paid great attention to this issue because this is a this is a real problem. And when you see the history of the early church, Acts fifteen, for example, this is what the apostles, in large part, are talking about: whether or not you have to follow the old rules to be considered in, in the new rules, right? St. Jerome thought that the works of the law meant the ceremonial precepts of the Old Testament laid out in the Torah. St. Augustine thought that the works of the law referred to the entire law, and this would include precepts, um, the ceremonial ones, as well as the moral ones, particularly the Ten Commandments. Um, Augustine's view is the view of the church, and this perspective was affirmed at the Council of Trent. Now, Augustine says, rightly, that we are justified by faith apart from all of the precepts of the law. And now, at first glance, it may seem like Luther would agree with Augustine. In fact, Luther was an Augustinian monk. <laughs> but Paul, St. Paul, in distinguishing between works and faith, is recognizing that in the chronology of justification, faith has to come first. So it's the faith that enables these subsequent works. We don't work and then thus earn faith, or work and then earn salvation. We receive grace that enables faith, and then we can cooperate with that grace in works. So when we come to Christ, we absolutely cannot bring works to impress God. We cannot earn his love or earn his favor with doing good things. We come with faith and only faith and only faith in God. But then here's the crucial part. It's faith that prepares us to walk in works. 
So the Catholic position is not that the works are merely the fruits of faith, right? It's not just you you believe and you have faith and you're enabled by provenient grace and therefore you work. No, it's actually that it's in in my opinion much more much more beautiful and a much richer idea than that. It's that you have the faith that is enabled by provenient grace. And it's that faith that enables you to work in such a way that you are actively cooperating. So so uh, not just enabled to do it, not just as a direct consequence of the faith, but you are actually able to participate and join your will, unite your will with the grace of God, with the will of God, and actively cooperate with him in the synergistic process. And it's that cooperation where you unite your will to his that leads to your sanctification. Now, James chapter 2 um, earlier than the passage I, I already read from James about uh, not being justified by faith alone, James chapter 2 affirms this, um, pointing out that in Abraham, faith was active along with his works, along with his works. That, that's really important. Uh, look at uh, 1 Corinthians 13, 2, where Paul says that if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. And this is, of course, in the context of, of faith, hope, and love, the theological virtues, but I think it's important to understand here that love, ultimately, charity, is about um, the will, uh, and it is, it is thus about action, right? So if you have all the faith, but you, you don't have the, the faith acted out in charity, then that's nothing. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul adds, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith, not just faith, but faith working through love. Faith working through love. That is really important because that right there captures the essence, I think, of this faith works dynamism. It's not just faith alone, and it's not just faith alone that produces a necessary consequence of works. Works are not just a byproduct of the faith, but it's faith through grace that enables a cooperation that allows us to unite ourselves to the will of God and live out love, live out charity. The Catholic Church believes that when a believer accepts Christ, righteousness is not imputed, but infused. So instead of, instead of imagining the sinner as now being still, still dirty but clothed in a white robe, the church believes that the righteousness actually becomes the righteousness of the believer. It's not by this mechanistic imputation. It's not by the God, not not by God as judge, just declaring that a believer is righteous, even though he's not. It actually Christ is. It is Christ's righteousness, and it's holy Christ's righteousness, and it belongs entirely to Him. But as we are grafted into the church, as we are grafted into the body of Christ, Christ's righteousness actually becomes our righteousness. It actually becomes our righteousness. It doesn't just look like our righteousness. It's not just a righteousness that we wear. But that righteousness actually becomes our righteousness, just as Christ's inheritance becomes our inheritance. We're not simply reputed to be righteous because of a legal acquittal. We actually become righteous because the righteousness of Christ becomes our own. I think the Catechism of the Church puts this very beautifully in section 1988. It says, we are branches grafted onto the vine, which is Christ. Today I was listening to the gospel reading with my girls, and uh, it was the, the section from John I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And that last part is really important, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. The church never has taught and does not teach, unequivocally so, 
that we earn our own salvation through works. But the church does teach that when we are in the church, when we are grafted into Christ Jesus, we are the branches from him. If we abide in him, then he abides in us and he enables us to cooperate with his will in love. So the misunderstandings regarding the Catholic doctrines of justification and sanctification generally revolve around one fatal misconception that the Catholic Church believes in salvation by works. This, I hope is clear, is not the position of the church. In fact, the Council of Trent affirmed that justification is not remission of sins merely, but also, this is important, right? Not just imputed, but it's actually the sanctification and renewal of the inward man through the voluntary reception of the grace and of the gifts, whereby man of unjust becomes just and of an enemy a friend, that so he may be an heir according to hope of life everlasting. That's from the sixth session of Trent chapter seven. The meritorious cause of that justification, the council added, is, is it human works? No, <laughs> this is a quote from council, the council of Trent, right? This is the 16th century. The meritorious cause is not our own works, but quote, our Lord Jesus Christ, who when we were enemies for the exceeding charity wherewith he loved us, merited justification for us by his most holy passion on the wood of the cross and made satisfaction for us unto God the Father. That is pretty unequivocal. It's not about our works. It is about the work of Christ who merited justification for us by his most holy passion. It, is, it has nothing at all to do with what we do. The church has always regarded the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as wholly sufficient for our salvation. Thomas Aquinas' Eucharistic hymn, Adoro Te Devote, makes this clear. He says, who's one drop of blood, all the world can save. You know, I think about that a lot when I am at Mass and I have a sip of the, uh, of the chalice, a sip from the chalice. One drop of blood can save the entire world. It's incredible. But that is the power of, of Christ's sacrifice. And our works, apart from him, can do nothing. So the church has always believed that justification comes from the grace of the Holy Spirit. If you don't believe me, um, check this out. Look at the Catholic Catechism, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. You'll sometimes see it abbreviated CCC. Um, the grace of the Holy Spirit communicates to us the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That is uh, section 1987 of the Catechism, citing Romans chapter 3. Justification detaches man from sin, look at section 1990, and it has been merited only by the passion of Christ, not by works. Not only does Trent affirm that, but the modern catechism does in section 1992. The church believes, of course, that justification establishes cooperation between God's grace and man's freedom, as I've talked about already. That's in section 1993. And the Council of Trent affirmed that without God's grace, man cannot by his own free will move himself toward justice in God's sight. So again, uh, more of Trent saying, look, it is not about what man does through his works. It is about the prevenient grace of God. It is about the justification merited by Christ for us on the cross through his death and passion. And justification entails the sanctification of man's whole being. Look at section 1995 of the Catechism. That is, again, about our righteousness not being imputed, but infused. Our righteousness is a real righteousness because we are really grafted into Christ Jesus in a mysterious but a very real way. As Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, 22, Now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So I'm going to wrap up the discussion on soteriology here a little bit. There's a lot more to say, uh, but hopefully I've sort of highlighted uh, some of the main fault lines and at least explained 
the Catholic position and maybe cleared up some misunderstandings. And if you're if you're if you are a Catholic, maybe giving you some uh, some information that you can use to talk about the faith to Protestant friends and uh, correct some misconceptions. Now, before going on, I want to sort of recap that a little bit. Scripture, ecclesiology, and soteriology. These are three very big issues that are, I would, I would characterize as the three main fault lines separating Protestantism and Catholicism. Now, there are some other tricky things, and I want to talk about those. Purgatory, uh, the veneration of the saints, the veneration of Mary, uh, Mary uh, as the Immaculate Mother of God, transubstantiation, right? All of these things that, that I'm sure you've heard about uh, explained as big fault lines, but I think scripture, ecclesiology, and soteriology are really the three big ones because if you get those three, um, if you can find unity on those three, the rest really follow pretty naturally. Um, so I, I do want to talk about some of those other ones, but scripture, ecclesiology, and soteriology um, are, are the big ones. But I think the Catholic Church uh, has been uniform on its position on these big questions, and I think it has been misunderstood. I also think, however, um, and I will acknowledge this, that the Catholic Church has not catechized well. So many times I will talk to former Catholics, ex-Catholics, who are now Protestants, now agnostics, atheists, nuns, whatever. Um, nuns is an N-O-N-E-S, like no, no religious affiliation, not a, not, not a cloistered uh, religious sister, not an, not an N-U-N nun. Um, but I'll talk to a lot of ex-Catholics who will sort of explain to me their understanding of Catholic theology or share with me their experience growing up in the church. And uh, in, in the vast majority of cases, uh, it's really sad because the church has failed its members, especially the American church. I can't speak uh, well for the church outside of the United States, but the church has really failed its members in equipping them and in teaching them. And uh, that is really bad. It's one, one reason why I started this podcast is just to share um, theological study and to create a community for that because we need to do better at teaching and sharing the faith. The church has not done well on that, and I think that's one reason why there's such, such bad misunderstandings. The church, um, in many ways, should point the finger at itself if it's going to complain about misunderstanding its theological teaching because it needs to do a much better job uh, of the exposition of these, of these truths. Okay, let's move on to uh, some other things. Let's talk first about purgatory. This one's a fun one. Uh, and I, I say fun uh, in the sense that uh, there's a lot of interesting theological things to talk about here, but uh, this really is a, a pretty fiery, oh well, uh, I guess not, not, no pun intended, but this is a, a source of fiery debate. Now, for me personally, purgatory was one of the most difficult parts of the faith for me to grasp, at least at first. Um, and it's a mystery, just like everything after this life is a mystery, uh, we can't fully grasp this. We can't fully understand it. And we can put the idea of purgatory into human terms and write about it, but we can't really capture what it is because it is, uh, at root, otherworldly. And just like the Trinity, even even though it may not be quite as mysterious as the Trinity, um, just as we cannot fully capture the Trinity in human uh, uh, terms because the finitude of our minds prevents us from doing so, we also can't do the same with heaven or hell or purgatory. We can only uh, use symbols and uh, the, the limited vocabulary that we have. So that's the first thing I'll say is that any attempt to explain or entirely elucidate purgatory uh, will fall short. Okay. The second thing I'll say is that many conceive of purgatory as a sort of hell light uh, where poor souls would be destined if they had not worked off their sins in this present life or a limbo where the dead wait in sort of a state of nothingness before arriving at their eternal destination. 
Neither of these are true. Both of these are wrong. Um, however, uh, refer to my earlier comments. Uh, it's very possible that, you know, if you're an ex-Catholic or you know some ex-Catholics, uh, this is what was taught in, you know, previous Sunday schools. Uh, it is wrong, but that doesn't excuse the, the fact that it was, it was taught. Um, but this is not the Catholic doctrine. In fact, uh, the best quote that I have found in my own study to elucidate the idea of purgatory is from Cardinal, then Cardinal Joseph Ratzinger before he became Pope Benedict XVI. And he is one of my heroes. I love that man dearly. Um, and, uh, and is, yeah, he's, he's, he's amazing. Just incredible. I'm a fan of everything he's ever written. Um, this is what he said. It's a little bit of a long quote, so bear with me, but this really, really helped me when I was studying the idea of purgatory. Pope Benedict or then Cardinal Ratzinger says, purgatory is not as Tertullian thought, some kind of supra worldly concentration camp where one is forced to undergo punishments in a more or less arbitrary fashion. Rather, it is the inwardly necessary process of transformation in which a person becomes capable of Christ, capable of God, i.e. capable of full unity with Christ and God, and thus capable of unity with the whole communion of saints. Simply to look at people with any degree of realism at all is to grasp the necessity of such a process. It does not replace grace by works, but allows the former to achieve its full victory precisely as grace. What actually saves is the full ascent of faith. But in most of us, that basic option is buried under a great deal of wood, hay, and straw. Only with difficulty can it peer out from behind the latticework of an egoism we are powerless to pull down with our own hands. Man is the recipient of the divine mercy, yet this does not exonerate him from the need to be transformed. Encounter with the Lord is this transformation. It is the fire that burns away our dross and reforms us to be vessels of eternal joy. So I want to come back to that comment in just a second. But first, let me just give a few comments here. The first thing is purgatory is an existential state. It is not a physical place, right? Just as we uh, have this often erroneous idea of heaven as a physical place above the clouds, we might tell our kids that we're going to, you know, when we die, we go, uh, you know, into the clouds to be with God, etc. That was sort of the idea I had of heaven when I was growing up as a kid. That's not, that's not it, right? It's not a physical place. Purgatory, uh, like heaven, like hell, is an existential state. The Catholic Church does not hold that it is a physical place, uh, does not hold that souls are in the state of purgatory for any specific length of earthly time. Um, so describing our transformation in these earthly terms does little to illuminate the sanctifying work of God for souls in purgatory. Um, I think it's also equally unhelpful uh, to think of purgatory as a place of desolate suffering. Now, some people in the church have taught that it is a place of suffering. Um, in, 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 in fact, it may be, there may be suffering involved, but, but it's sanctifying suffering, of course. It's not desolate suffering. It's not the suffering of despair. Um, but St. Catherine of Siena uh, has this uh, little work called The Treatise on Purgatory, and she suggests there that purgatory is actually a place of great joy, um, even if there is suffering there. Because she says, quote, for every glimpse which can be had of God exceeds any pain or joy a man can feel. In other words, um, the fact that you are drawing closer to God in purgatory makes it by definition a place of great joy, even if there is suffering, because it is the suffering that is drawing you closer to, to God, to Christ, and that is the source of all joy. So in this view, um, and this is the church's view um, that, that Benedict has talked about and Catherine of Siena is talking about in her treatise on purgatory, purgatory is the state in which God's purifying fire burns away our dross and reforms us to be vessels of eternal joy. This is, uh, that's also from Catherine of Siena. I just find this to be an awe-inspiring conception of the mercy, grace, and holiness of God. This is just amazing. Now let's go back to that Benedict quote, right? A few things I think to point out here. One thing is he says, it does not replace grace by works, right? What actually saves is the full ascent of faith. Those are verbatim words from 
Cardinal Ratzinger. So purgatory is not about earning your salvation. Purgatory is about perfecting the work of mercy, right? Your man is the recipient of the divine mercy, he says. Yet this does not exonerate him from the need to be transformed, right? You need to be transformed. And the fact of the matter is that you can live an entire life in all of these terrible ways, right? And and not being not being a Christian, not being in the church, you can do all of these things, right? And be a philanderer and a thief and a villain and reach your deathbed and accept Christ, right? Christ's mercy is never closed to you. And so you can accept Christ on your deathbed and you will be instantly transformed. You will have your soul uh, infused with the divine mercy because you are the recipient of that divine mercy. And so once you give the full assent of faith, it is the mercy of Christ that saves you because you are saved entirely by Christ. But then here's the thing. Once you are saved by Christ, right, you're in. You're going to heaven. You will be united to God. But purgatory is about burning off all of the the consequences, right? All of the dross uh, that you've accumulated in your earthly life. Because all of the ways that you've lived your life, all of the unholy things, all of the sins that you've chosen, all of the sins that you pursued, all of those have built a lot of rust and debris and plaque on your soul. And purgatory is about burning all of that off. Look at look at 1 Corinthians 3, 11 through 15. This is, this is uh, St. Paul. And, and um, Ratzinger references wood, hay, and straw. This is a direct reference, actually, to 1 Corinthians 3. Paul says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built up on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. What? This is an example of one of those verses that as a Protestant, I really just honestly had never paid attention to. But reading this through the lens of purgatory and the Catholic understanding of works cooperating with grace and works completing the uh, sanctifying divine mercy of Christ, this is incredible, right? Paul is saying, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss. He will be saved, okay? He'll be saved, but only as through fire. That's amazing. Now, Protestants obviously have their own interpretations of this passage, but the Catholic interpretation is that this is a very clear reference to purgatory. The state of purgatory is one in which we encounter the fire that tests what sort of work each has done. All the souls in purgatory have an assurance of their salvation, right? Just like Paul is saying, he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So some of us have an awful lot of hay and wood and straw to be burned away before we can be holy and completely united with Christ. But we will be. Our salvation is assured because the divine mercy of Christ is limitless and infinite. Okay, so that's purgatory. Let's talk a little bit about Mary, the mother of God. Now, I recently heard a Protestant, this is, I mean, this is not like a mainline Protestant, uh, and this is not a common Protestant position, I think, Um this is probably a more sort of fundamentalist critique of um, Catholicism, and I don't want to. I don't want to. I don't want people to think that I'm saying this is representative of a, of a Protestant position. It's not. But I recently heard a Protestant accuse the Catholic Church of turning Mary into a mama god, alongside the Holy Trinity. Um, that's ridiculous. It's completely ridiculous. That is not at all uh, what the Catholic what the Catholic Church teaches about Mary. Um, 
Now, yes, the Catholic Church accords Mary the titles of advocate, helper, benefactress, in some cases, mediatrix. But the Catechism of the Church is very specific on how these titles relate to the unique mediation of Christ. So I just want to read to you a section of the Catechism of the Church, section 970, about how Mary's function uh, is related to the mission of Christ. Okay, here's, here's a direct quote. Check section 970. Mary's function as mother of men in no way obscures or diminishes the unique mediation of Christ, but rather shows its power. The Blessed Virgin's salutary influence on men flows forth from the superabundance of the merits of Christ, rests on his mediation, depends entirely on it, and draws all its power from it. No creature could ever be counted along with the incarnate word and redeemer. But just as the priesthood of Christ is shared in various ways, both by his ministers and the faithful, and as the goodness of God is radiated in different ways among his creatures, so also the unique mediation of the Redeemer does not exclude, but rather gives rise to a manifold cooperation, which is but a sharing in this one source. Okay, lots of stuff to digest there, but I just want to emphasize real quick before I, I go on to say some other uh, reflections. Um, just I want, to, I want to emphasize these things. It says no creature could ever be counted along with the incarnate word, right? It says that, the virgin's influence on men flows forth from the superabundance of the merits of Christ, right? It's all from Christ. It rests on his mediation, right? So the, the mediation of Christ is still a unique mediation, even though um, we, uh, we sometimes rely on Mary as an intercessor, right? The mediation of Christ is still unique. It depends entirely on the mediation of Christ, and the virgin's influence draws all its power from Christ, right? So uh, it's very clear who is in charge here, right? Everything comes from Christ. All right, now some other comments. First, Mary is still a creature. She's created by God. She's afforded no quality of divinity, right? There's nothing about Catholic theology saying that Mary is uh, is a God, right? Second, just as Peter writes that we're a royal priesthood, and as such, we share in the priestly ministry of Christ. In the same way, but to a greater degree, Mary has been perfectly cooperating in the ministry of Christ since she perfectly and freely assented to the incarnation in Luke 1.38, right? This is the Annunciation. Gabriel comes, says you will, you will uh, bear a child. His name will be Jesus, right? She says, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Okay, a quick comment here. I, as a Protestant, was also guilty of glossing over the Annunciation. I think that the Annunciation is one of the most momentous moments, if not the most momentous moment, apart from the crucifixion and resurrection uh, in all of human history. Because it is the Annunciation that is the beginning of the Incarnation. It is the Incarnation in which God himself becomes man, takes on flesh, uh, enters the womb of a human being, and begins his mission of salvation. And the Annunciation is so important because it is an example of exactly what every Christian should do in every part of their life, to freely and totally surrender to the divine will. And when Gabriel came to Mary and said, this will happen, this is the, this is the plan, essentially, Mary could have said, no. Right? Mary could have shut herself off from the divine will, as we do in so many instances whenever we sin. Right? What is sin except a rejection of God's love? Right? And what is a rejection of God's love uh, but a claim that we know better than God and uh, therefore will deviate from the divine will? But Mary, instead, at this moment when the stakes were the absolute highest, right? 
much like you know it's a it's a it's a mirror image but in the opposite way of eve's decision right in the garden of eden in this moment where literally the future of humanity hinged on her decision where eve went left mary goes right and mary fully and freely and those two two qualifications are very important fully and freely assented to the will of god so that's very very important okay and that is why the catholic church holds up mary as a distinctive and wholly unique example of man as man was intended to be mary is the perfect creature not through any merit that she has earned for herself but because, A, she was preserved from the stain of original sin, and B, because in the moment, the moment of the Annunciation, which uh, is, as I mentioned, you know, it's, it's, it's like the Greek word kairos, right? A, a time of great opportunity, the, the, the appointed time, right? When that time came, Mary fully cooperated and freely cooperated with the will of God. So she is the perfect example of a creature, and that is why we look to her as our mother. Um, she's also the new Eve, which is why we look to her as the mother of human race, because all Christians, because in, in this way, you know, Mary was the first Christian, right? So because Mary was the first Christian, of course, we call her the mother of all Christians, and she is the mother of all Christians, right? She's the mother of the church. Um, she inaugurated the church, and at the foot of the cross, when Jesus told John, the disciple, to look after Mary as his mother, uh, he was telling us, right, if you if you follow me, you will uh, take care of my mother, right? Um, so that that's really important to understand. Now, the Immaculate Conception, okay? Uh, I already mentioned this as well. She was preserved from the sin of original sin. Now, the standard narrative here is that um, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception was uh, innovated by Pope Pius IX in 1854. Uh, many Protestants will say this, right? The, there's no basis for the Immaculate Conception. And then Pope Pius IX came along in the 19th century. He wrote this, wrote this papal bull and said, basically, uh, Mary was immaculately conceived. Okay, all well and good. But here's the thing. The doctrine was not innovated. Um, it was dogmatically defined, yes, true, but it was dogmatically defined by Pope Pius IX because there were 19th century challenges. Um, the immaculate conception merely reaffirmed what the church had always taught. Uh, for example, look at, look at what Augustine wrote, right? We must accept the Holy Virgin Mary, he said, concerning whom I wish to raise no question when it touches the subject of sins out of honor to the Lord, for whom him we know what abundance of grace for overcoming sin in every particular was conferred upon her who had the merit to conceive and bear him who undoubtedly had no sin. That's from Augustine's Nature and Grace. Uh, this position was also held by Origen, Ambrose, Hippolytus, uh, Irenaeus, and virtually all the church fathers. Uh, even Martin Luther, by the way, even Martin Luther was an adherent uh, of the Marian doctrines of the Catholic Church, including her perpetual virginity, her title of Mother of God, or Theotokos, and her Immaculate Conception. And I think it's also worth noting, too, um, that this is not without biblical support. Luke one twenty eight, for example, uh, when uh, when um, Gabriel says uh, favored with grace or favored one in some translations, um, this uh, greeting basically uh, means uh, full of charity, right? Full of grace. Um, that can be interpreted as a, a, a recognition of her being preserved from sin. Um, Elizabeth tells Mary, blessed are you among women. Um <clears throat> And uh, yeah, so there, so there is biblical support for this. Now, I'm not saying that biblical support is con conclusive, uh, but it certainly does not contradict uh, the biblical narrative either. Um, and I do want to emphasize, re-emphasize, Mary's preservation from sin is not due to her own work or merit based solely on the grace of God. 
So this is, when we say she was immaculately conceived, we're not saying that she somehow earned this. Uh, first of all, that's ridiculous. How can you earn something before you're even born, right? The idea is that before uh, she was conceived, she was preserved from the stain of original sin. So A, she couldn't have merited that possibly uh, by herself. Um, but B, just a sort of image to help you think about this, uh, there are some of us who fall into a pit and are pulled out, right? And, and this is not my analogy. I forget who, who first came up with this, but there are some of us who fall into a pit, right? And Christ pulls us out. Well, imagine Mary uh, sort of being held up by Christ before she even had a chance to fall into the pit, right? That's what this is about. It's not about uh, Mary somehow growing wings and flying so she doesn't fall into the pit, right? She's still saved by God, just like we are, but she happened to be saved by God before the fact, before she had a chance to sin. And and that is so that uh, God would have a perfect vessel into which to come into the world in the incarnation. Okay. One final thing here, I've had some Protestants talk to me about Romans 3.23. This is uh, where Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, Romans 3.23 refers to all men, right? Uh, so basically all of mankind has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So uh, the implication from, Pro- from Protestants is that, hey, if Paul says all men have sinned, doesn't that include the Virgin Mary? Well, my response is pretty simple. If he says all men, wouldn't that also include Jesus, right? Jesus was a man. He was fully man and fully God, but he was still fully man. Um, So clearly Paul is talking about uh, the arc of history and the human race. uh, And this is, uh, there is room for exception in this this claim, right? So I don't think that contradicts the idea of Mary's uh, perfection as well. Okay. So that's uh, some very brief words on Mary, the mother of God. There's so much more we, more we can say, and this is and there, there's so much richness here. I really want to talk about it more in in future articles. So I think we a future podcast. So I think we will. But I do want to say a few things on transubstantiation before I I wrap this up as well. So there's a lot to say about the church's sacramental economy and and the sacramental imagination, and I plan on doing that more in future episodes. Uh, but I think at the, at the well, I, not I think, I know at the very center of the sacramental economy is the Eucharist. Now, although communal celebrations of bread and wine are observed across Christian denominations, Catholicism stands apart, but not alone. Uh, the Orthodox are over there like, hey guys. Um, in its recognition that the consecrated bread and wine are the actual body and blood of Christ. Not just in symbol, but in substance. Okay, now the great diversity of theological opinion on this issue makes it a pretty confusing topic to navigate. I've been in Protestant churches where communion is reduced to believers sharing a meal together, right? Like, hey, this is just a way that we recognize that we're all one body. Okay, uh, fine. Uh, there's more to it than that, though. I've also worshipped in Anglican churches where we where we pray for permission to eat the flesh of thy dear son, Jesus Christ. It's uh, the words from the prayer book. Um but the 39 articles uh, tell us that basically we're not talking about the real substance. You know, there's there's a there's a real presence there, but it's not in the way that the Catholic Church teaches. Basically, it's really sort of wishy-washy and refuses to define how it is. But the Catholic Church, on the other hand, has always believed that by the, and this is a, uh, a quote here from the Catechism, by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change of the whole substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christ our Lord, and of the whole substance of the wine into the substance of his blood. Now, the church has always embraced transubstantiation as defined by the Council of Trent. The specific doctrine, uh, as such, was articulated by Pope Innocent III in the 13th century, 1208, the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the Second Council of Lyons in 1274, Pope Benedict XII in 1341, the Council of Constance in 1415, and the Council of Florence. So lots and lots and lots of times before 
uh, Trent uh, went ahead and codified it in very strong words. Um, the church had said, no, this is this is what it is. It's the real deal here. We're not talking about symbols. We're not just sharing a meal together. This is the body and blood of Christ. Very important. Now, earlier still, the doctrine is confirmed in the writings of St. Irenaeus, St. Cyril of Jerusalem, St. Ambrose, St. Gregory of Nyssa, St. Augustine, St. Athanasius, St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, very robustly, I, I would add, St. Justin Martyr, St. John Chrysostom. He declared that the priest in the role of Christ pronounces these words, but their power and grace are God's. This is my body, he says. This word transforms the things offered, right? They really become the body and blood of Christ. I also think there's a really strong biblical basis for the doctrine. Um, look at John chapter 6. This is another one of those passages that I didn't really know what to do with as a Protestant, but as a Catholic, it makes so much more sense. It's just totally illuminated for me. In John 6, Jesus establishes the the uh, the doctrine of the Eucharist. Um, and I think this entire passage bears repeating since I believe that it sort of outlines some of the main arguments we use today. Let me just read. This is John chapter 6, verses 52 to 62. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? All right, so that's the end of that passage. It's interesting here that the Jews are arguing among themselves, pointing to the ridiculousness of Jesus saying that they could eat his flesh. So they start to grumble among themselves, right? <laughs> and uh, so the, the, the part that I read has the Jews disputing among themselves, saying, how can this guy give us, give us his flesh to eat? What's that about, right? This is ridiculous. Well, Jesus could say, guys, it's a metaphor. Come on, like, you just understand what I'm saying here. Just, you know, I'm speaking in riddles, geez. But instead he says, truly, truly, right? That's like saying, no, really, really. I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. This is exactly the opposite of language you would use if you were talking about metaphors, right? He's saying, no, really, really. My flesh is, is really food, right? It's, and my blood is really drink. My flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. So many of Jesus' disciples responded with grumbling about Jesus' words and um, called them a hard saying to receive. But Jesus doesn't respond to the second round of incredulity, incredulity, incredulity excuse me, with an assurance that he was speaking metaphorically. Rather, he reminds his disciples again of his power, speaking in anticipation of the resurrection. And when he talks about the bread that comes down from heaven that the fathers ate, what he's talking about is manna. And he's saying this in the synagogue, uh, the manna, uh, the showbread would, would, be, would be kept in the tabernacle, right? And um, he's saying that they ate that and died, but this is stuff that will enable you to live for eternal life. Obviously, he's not talking about physical life. He's talking about spiritual eternal life, right? Complete union with God uh, for all eternity. But he's, he's making a direct reference to manna. And what was manna but actual physical bread that they ate that provided sustenance, right? So this is actual physical bread that provides actual, actual real spiritual sustenance, right? 
So um, the Protestant explanation of these passages is, is that basically uh, Jesus is giving no indication that his words are, be, are to be taken literally, um, or that there's there's a uh, well. I, so there, I guess there's a two there's there's two main interpretations. I think one is that he's not speaking literally, right? But I think that um, this is very literal, and I think my previous points still stand, right? That Jesus has multiple chances to say, guys, this is a metaphor. This is just a parable. You don't understand it, but you will. Um, instead, he is very emphatic. I'm serious, guys, right? My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink, right? And in, in the gospel of Matthew, right? It's a wholly different gospel, but the idea is still there. When Jesus is consecrating his body and blood at the Last Supper, take, eat, this is my body, right? Not this is like my body. Um, we actually... We have a, someone gave us a children's Bible. Um, it's written by, it's edited by Protestants and and they, they modified Jesus's words at the Last Supper and said that at the Last Supper, Jesus said, this bread is like my body and this blood is like, or this this uh, drink is like my blood. But that's not what he says. Let's not modify his words here, right? Jesus says, take, eat, this is my body, right? This is my blood, which is poured out for many for the, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, so that's the first thing I'll say. I think the second interpretation is not so much about scriptural exegesis of John 6 as it is about uh, taking issue with the uh, church's uh, importation of, this is this is sort of a strange, um, or not strange, but it's sort of a complicated metaphysical question, but it takes issues with the Catholic church's importation of Aristotelian metaphysical categories to explain what's happening. Um, so for example, it says, you know, like it's not helpful to talk about transubstantiation because it's using, it's using Greek physical metaphysical concepts to talk about what's happening. And really it's just more of a mystery than that. So we need to just sort of go with it being real presence. This is, uh, really predominantly the, uh, Anglican position. If you read the 39 articles, it is specifically repudiates transubstantiation says that's repugnant to the plain words of scripture, but it does assert some sort of real presence just says that we can't really know how it is there at all. Um, so a couple things on that. One, Trent did not say that transubstantiation is the only way or even the most correct way to talk about um, what's happening. It, it, it uh, acknowledged that it is a helpful category for defining the actual transformation that takes place. Um, but the, S, the, the thrust of the Catholic teaching is that uh, it is really about the real uh, body and blood of Christ. And that's what we have, we have always held, right? Um, the second thing is that this whole Greek uh, metaphysical categories debate is really, uh, I think, a waste of time because we use Greek metaphysical categories to talk about theological concepts all the time. So, for example, the fact that, um, you know, uh, uh, homeosis, right, the uh, uh, God and the Son being of one substance, right, of one substance with the Father is the words of the creed. That is a Greek metaphysical category. Or hypostatic union, uh, the way that we define the Trinity, that is also a Greek metaphysical category. So um, I don't, uh, I don't uh, buy the argument that we can't use Greek metaphysical categories because the Church has, since time immemorial, I mean, literally since the uh, you know fourth century, used these categories to talk about these mysteries of the faith. And uh, these are again always going to be limited by our human finitude and the limitations of our human created minds but they still can be very useful in helping us sort of grasp the mysteries of what is going on. Okay. So let me just wrap up by saying this. Jesus' disciples in John 6 were right. This is a hard saying, right? When I go to Mass uh, every Sunday, and I, I try to go during the week as often as I can, when I go to Mass, I think about this all the time, right? As the priest is saying the words of consecration, uh, as the priest offers up the elements to God, uh, 
this is the source and the summit of the Christian life, in the words of Vatican II. And it never ceases to blow my mind uh, in no small way to think that the bread and wine that are brought forward for consecration, uh, by the time I consume them, have become the body and blood of Christ. And yes, the accidents remain, to use those Greek metaphysical categories. So it tastes like bread and it tastes like wine. But I believe, as should every creedal Catholic, that they are actually and really the body and blood of Christ. Now, this is a really hard mystery. I have a harder time grasping this than I do the Trinity, which is saying something. I think the Trinity is a really remarkable mystery and also very hard to grasp. But one reason, I think, why the Catholic Church calls the Eucharist the mystery of faith is because it is so difficult. And ultimately, I'm of the opinion of St. Ambrose on this subject. Ambrose said, Could not Christ's word, which can make from nothing what did not exist, change existing things into what they were not before? It is no less a feat to give things their original nature than to change their nature. And so when I reflect on this, it occurs to me that indeed the same Jesus who exists as a member of the Trinity, who was made incarnate by the Holy Spirit, who was born of the Virgin Mary, who walked a sinless life, who was crucified while carrying the sins of the world, and who ascended on high to sit at the right hand of God the Father, yes, this Savior is powerful enough to change what looks like bread and wine into his body and blood of the new covenant. And I don't have time to talk about it today, but maybe we'll do a future book club on this. I would, I highly recommend, I recently finished it, I highly recommend Brant Petre's Jesus and the Jewish Roots of the Eucharist because it goes into so many of the theological ideas behind covenants and Eucharist and Passover and explains exactly why these ideas are so important. And it really strengthens, I think, the church's teaching on transubstantiation and why we really are consuming the body and blood of the new lamb that was slain. Okay, I think I'm going to wrap it up there. That's uh, sort of part two of my reasons for faith. Uh, I will also add that there is so much more that I could say on all of these things, and I plan to in future episodes. This is really just a very cursory uh, outline of some of the things that brought me to the church. And I will also say that this is kind of a snapshot of my thinking when I became Catholic. It's not even really a snapshot fully of my time of, of my thoughts now, because since I've become Catholic, I have tried to read as widely as I could and to study as much as I could about these things. And there's such a richness and such a depth to Catholic, to Catholic teaching that it really is a never-ending well and a font that never runs dry. Um, there's so much more I can say, and there's so much more I will say, and that's exactly why I'm starting this podcast. But let me just conclude with, with these short remarks. When I was becoming Catholic, I read the book Lead Kindly Light by a man named Thomas Howard. Thomas Howard was uh, evangelical and then became Anglican and then eventually became Catholic. And this book is basically the, the story of him becoming Catholic. And in this book, he writes, I had to come to terms with the church in all of her antiquity, her authority, her unity, her liturgy, and her sacraments. Now, I had to do the same. I made the decision to become Catholic by following the footsteps of many great saints. And I had a genuine belief, and I still do, that God is drawing me closer to himself. And for me, the, the sanctifying graces of this journey are very real. Like Thomas Howard, I had to confront the church from the outside looking in. And like Howard, I, I decided to join the historic church, 
erected by Christ and administered by his appointed apostles. I joined the authoritative church, which holds the keys to bind and loose that Jesus promised to the apostles in Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, and which has safeguarded the mystery of Christ from, from heresies like Arianism, Montanism, Pelagianism, Nestorianism, Gnosticism, Docetism, Monophysitism, hundreds more. Heresies that you haven't even heard of because the church held the line and stomped out the heresies, stamped out the heresies before they could even cause problems. I joined the one holy Catholic church united under one doctrine. I joined a liturgical church which carefully safeguards the apostolic traditions in creedal worship. And finally, I joined a sacramental church, which at the core of the sacramental economy proclaims that the Eucharist is not just a memorial meal, but the actual body and blood of its risen Savior. That baptism is not just a ceremonial bath or a symbol of being washed, but actually a sacrament that effects the grace that it proclaims. The confession is not just a matter between me and God, but confession is something that should be done to one another. That marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, and that transforms the way that we should think about marriage and the permanence of it. That an ontological change happens when a priest is ordained for ministry. That the bishops are the holders of the keys to bind and to loose. That they are the composition of the magisterium. That they are authorized by God to lead the church and protected by God from erring on matters of faith and morals, and so on. So these are difficult things to believe, but in many ways, they are the most natural things to believe as well. And that is why I am a Catholic. And though some of these things may not always be easy to grasp, I always go back to the the sick boy's father in the Gospel of Mark, who wanted Jesus to heal his boy. And even though that was really hard for him to believe that Jesus could do, he said, I believe Help my unbelief. Thanks so much for listening to Credo Catholic. The next episode is going to be a book club episode. We're looking at Frank Sheed's Map of Life, so I encourage you to pick that up. I'd love to hear about what you thought of today's episode. Future episodes will probably not be this long. I know it's just a kind of a lot of stuff to talk about, and I get a little bit carried away, a little bit excited. So thank you for bearing with me. I'd love to hear what you think. Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. Uh, share your thoughts with me. Uh, let me know. You can also follow at Vernacular Pod on Twitter or on Instagram. I don't run those accounts. Uh, I, I have someone do that. I don't like social media too much. <laughs> but um, the best way to reach me is through email, Catholic at vernacularpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening. I would love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on this episode. would also love to hear some suggestions if you have someone in the Catholic world that you want to hear Uh, interviewed on a podcast uh, or you want to hear more about a certain topic, please let me know so I can start planning those episodes out. All right. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, While you're at it, go check out other shows on the Vernacular Podcast Network. We have a companion podcast just called The Rosary. You can just find it anywhere you get your podcasts, but you can pray through The Rosary every single day, the glorious, luminous, sorrowful, and uh, joyful mysteries. You can also look at vernac- or listen to Vernacular Podcast. That's a podcast I do with my wife. Uh, we aim to contribute to human flourishing. And there are some other podcasts on my network as well. Uh, go check out vernacularpodcast.com. Once again, vernacularpodcast.com. Email me at credocatholic at vernacularpodcast.com. That's it for me. Thank you so much, and I'll talk to you soon.